Well, we're chapter 99. We are progressing. Slowly but surely, we are going forward. And, and we've had a lot, of, a lot of judgment. We went through the, the seals, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and we've talked about the seven vials or bowls of wrath. The undiluted wrath of God. No grace. It's over with. It's gone. So we looked the last couple of weeks at Revelations 17 and 18. And in chapters 17 and 18, we saw the destruction of Babylon. And I know sometimes it's hard to keep this whole thing in the big picture. You know, the tribulation lasts seven years. About halfway through the tribulation, or about that three and a half year mark, that's when the religious Babylon was destroyed. It was taken apart by the Antichrist. And things became even worse. The Antichrist had used this one world religion to unite people. Once they were, were united, once the false prophet had done signs and wonders drawing people to the Antichrist, he said, I am God, you will worship me. You will take the mark of the beast, or you will not be able to do anything as far as buying and selling. You will bow to my idols of me, and I am going to sit in the Holy of Holies as God. That took place about halfway through the tribulation. And towards the very end of the tribulation now is the picture we're looking at when political, commercial, and economic Babylon has been destroyed. While the Antichrist dismantled the religious system, God himself judges the Antichrist and that political, economic, and commercial system. He destroys it himself with the seventh bowl of his wrath. So this is all taking place. Now we get to chapter 19. It's as if we're going to get a little bit of a picture of what has been taking place from a heavenly perspective. We're going to get to see John receiving this vision of, from God of what's going to take place. And at the end of those seven years of the tribulation, it's like it's just the, the, the pedals to the metal. It's accelerated. Everything is speeding up. It all is happening so quickly. And that's where we're at today. And we're at the table. We need to remember, too, when, when uh, the Antichrist decided he was God, or he revealed that he was God, told the people he was God, things started to deteriorate. You can imagine. Go back, let's go back to ancient Egypt. When Israel was captive in Egypt, they were slaves to Egypt. Can you imagine when Pharaoh starts saying no to God each time Moses comes and says, let my people go to worship. Let my people go. And nope, the next plague comes. Let my people go and the next plague comes and the next plague and the next plague. Can you not imagine there was a lot of grumbling going on amongst the Egyptians? What kind of Pharaoh? What's Pharaoh thinking? What's he doing? Look what's happening to us. This misery, this suffering, all he has to do is say yes. Well, a similar picture in my mind anyway comes up here in the part, last part of the tribulation. The Antichrist has this one-world government, this one-world economy. Everything's been going relatively smoothly, and all of a sudden things start to fall apart, and the bowls of God's wrath start getting poured out. All of these kings, all of these people that were allied in an alliance with the Antichrist, some of them became very disgruntled to the point they were going to go to war against the Antichrist. The Eastern Bloc countries, China, etc., they were gathering in the Valley of Jezreel, near Megiddo, if you remember these words. 
And they were gathering, they were coming to fight the Antichrist. And the Western bloc of allies, those kings, there was going to be a war among all the evil generals and people. And this was kind of the stage that was being set for what God was about to do. God, throughout Revelation, used the Antichrist. He used the false prophet. He used Satan himself. None of this was taking place without God's foreknowledge. And it was all going to fit together in his plan. So all this horror is taking place. And then we came to Revelation 18, verse 20, when we read these words. We've been reading about weeping and mourning. Weeping and mourning. All of this horror. And then we read in 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she has treated you. And remember, Babylon can sometimes be looked as an ancient city that's been restored, but more often than not, I believe it's this Babylonian system, one world government. And now God is saying, it's time to rejoice. The time has come. I have promised that your blood would be revenged. There would be revenge against those. And God is pouring out His vengeance against the people that have been persecuting and martyring believers for so long. And in John chapter 19, John receives the revelation of the returning of Jesus Christ. When he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, I will be back. The title of my message this morning was, True to His Promise, He's Back. Even though this is futuristic, it's truth. He's coming back. And we're taken from this somber weeping and mourning that had been going on under the woes being poured out to this joyful worship and praise. We're going to see it described a little bit in chapter 19. We're taken from this darkness. You remember as part of the woes were poured out, absolute darkness came over the land in the midst of all this destruction. The doom that was being poured out. And all of a sudden we're now being taken to light and deliverance from all of this from the series of woes that we've been hearing about and seeing and reading about that John saw in his vision, all of a sudden we are going to come into chapter 19 to a series of some announcements that are going to be made that are to cause people to praise and worship God. We're going to look at Revelation 19 in four sections. And we're going to do it rather quickly. There's so much more in these, this chapter than we're going to have time to cover. But the first section is the Hallelujah, hallelujah Choruses. We'll talk about that word in just a few moments. I mentioned it last night at the worship service. The second one is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise God, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hopefully, we're all going to be at the table. There's going to be a series of suppers we're going to mention towards the very end of my sermon. We're all going to be at at least one of them. I'll tell you in advance, I intend to be at three of them. Hope you're there with me. The third section is the return of Jesus. And the fourth section is the Supper of God. You may have not heard of that before. The Supper of God. That's the one I'm not going to be at. And the announcement of Armageddon, the final battle. So let's start with the first few verses of chapter 19. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot 
who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Hallelujah. Four different times we read that. Hallelujah. The praise is going out. We hear it from the saints in heaven. They're hollering hallelujah and praising God. And it's like all of a sudden the 24 elders are overwhelmed with the praise and worship that's going on. And they join in. Amen. So let it be. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And notice the sound, how it's described, the praise and worship in heaven. It doesn't sound like the church I grew up in. As a matter of fact, it doesn't sound like here. We might say, boy, the praise and worship's loud here. People really enter in here. It doesn't quite sound like peals of thunder and the sound of mighty rushing waters to me. If you like quiet worship, you aren't going to like heaven. It is going to be loud. It is going to be passionate. Believe it or not, this seems like we're going to have emotions in heaven. So emotionalism is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, I believe it's a gift from God. Verse 1, a loud voice of a great multitude. Where is this great multitude? We could go back to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, which we're not going to go back to. But there's this great multitude that's talked about in that chapter. The 144,000 that are sealed as evangelists on earth, that they were not going to die. There was nothing the Antichrist could do about it. These 144,000 are going to evangelize, and it says there's going to be the greatest outpouring in the history of the world. Imagine that. And this great multitude, most of them, if not almost all of them, are martyred once they accept Jesus Christ and refuse to take the mark of the beast. And this is this great multitude in heaven that is crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Hallelujah is a, is a word that comes from two Hebrew words. The first part of it is halal. Halal. And it means to, to rave about God. Praise something. Halal. There was a halal in the book of the Psalms, a number of the books of, that we call books in Psalms, was part of a halal that the Jewish people would sing regularly as a song of praise to God. A Hebrew word to praise, to rave about this. And the second part of the word is just simply Yah. Yah, as in Yahweh. So the word hallelujah, every time we sang that this morning, what that word meant in the Hebrew was praise Jehovah or praise the Lord. So every time you hear somebody say hallelujah, they may not know what they're saying. It sounds nice. But what we're saying is praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And we see it being sung from heaven and it sounds really, really loud. The reasons for their praise, or at least some of them, are given for us as we read through those first six verses. One, his judgments are true and righteous. His judgments, his wrath is true and righteous. 
We'll talk about that in a few moments because some people will go, wait a minute. He's going to kill everybody on the earth that did not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? And we're calling that true and righteous. The second thing we see was her smoke rises up forever and ever. We're pra- they're praising God. The saints in heaven, many who have been martyred during the tribulation, are praising Him, singing hallelujah because of the smoke. And we don't know for sure. It could be a picture of ancient Babylon and the smoke that's going on as the, the seventh bowl is poured out. Or it could be a reference to the eternal destination of hell. The smoke forever and ever. The judgment that they're going to receive on earth in being killed by God is nothing compared to the judgment they will face for eternity in hell. Hell is not a place to party. I remember how stupid I was and I used to say that all the time. We're going to party, it's good here, but we're going to party in hell. Anybody say that besides me? Are you all smarter than that? Well, I'm glad you weren't around me then. The praise of heaven. The third reason we're given is He is the Lord God, the Almighty God. He's the real deal. The Antichrist had his day during the tribulation. But he was phony. Everything about him was a lie and a deception. Jesus is the real deal. He is the Lord God, the God Almighty. He is going to reign forever and ever. Actually, he has already been reigning forever and ever. And as I said before, when I read those verses, the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, it's loud. It's enthusiastic. They are excited for what God is doing. And he's told them to rejoice. And one of their rejoicing about is vengeance. His mind saith the Lord. I shared this last night. Spurgeon has a quote about worship. Very small quote. You could probably memorize this one. Mechanical worship is easy, but worthless. If we gather together and our worship, our time of corporate worship with music and song, is just a mechanical thing. I like the songs. They're great. I know the words. They're fun. It's familiar. I put the, hit the button. Worship. Mechanically worship. If it's not something that's coming from hearts full of passion and thanksgiving, it's worthless. God is not interested in how, and this makes me feel really good, God's not interested in how good you can sing. He's interested in where it's coming from when you do sing. He doesn't just like a joyful noise because it's noise. He likes it because it's joyful coming from a heart filled with the joy of the Lord. Our worship, if it's not coming from something inside, in our heart, in spirit and in truth, it may sound good, but it's worthless to God. Those of you that sing like me should rejoice in that. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the second section we're looking at, starting in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, 
These are true words of God. And I fell at His feet to worship Him. And He said to me, Do not do that. I am telling you, I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we look at this, and remember, this is, this is John saying these things. This is John reacting. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John who was present at the cross. This is John who got into the inner sanctum of the three. He was there with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's heard the teachings and experienced all these things. And all of a sudden, I ask myself, what was he thinking? All of a sudden, he's bowing down and trying to worship an angel. I think he was just so carried away in the excitement of the marriage supper of the Lamb, that God's judgment was being poured out, the rejoicing in heaven. I think he just lost his focus for just a moment. And the angel made sure he got him back on focus. Let us rejoice. Now marriage in biblical times, most of you, many of you know this, but marriage in biblical times was a little different in the Jewish people than it is for us today. There was this first part called a betrothal. They were betrothed, betrothed to the one that we're going to be married to. It's kind of like getting engaged today, only it was taken way, way, way more seriously. In the eyes of the people of the world, if you were betrothed to marry someone, in their eyes you were already married. Even though you were not living together, you were separated, you were commanded and called to be pure and completely devoted and committed to whom you were betrothed to. And that betrothal could take a time frame. It didn't, didn't necessarily have a specific time. It might be a shorter time or it could be a longer time, depending really on the family, the fathers. And then the marriage ceremony or the marriage, what we would call a ceremony, would take place. And it began, and, and you've seen this in some of the parables of Jesus, it began when the groom would make the trip to the future bride's house. In other words, the groom was going to go and get ready for his bride, pick up his bride, who has been getting ready for him. And then they would go back to the groom's house. And then during the wedding, what would happen is the father of the groom would take the hand of the bride and place it in the hand of the groom. And then the marriage feast would start. And the marriage feast was like the highlight of the whole thing. Um, for better reasons than our receptions have become the highlight of the whole thing. But the marriage feast, and the marriage feast, depending upon the people and the wealth of the people, the marriage feast may last for a number of hours or a day, or it may last for a week or longer. They're celebrating the marriage of the husband and wife. And I share that so we maybe get a little bit of a picture of that as an analogy of what's being talked about when he says, Though the invitations have been sent, the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place. The church, us, we have been betrothed to Jesus by faith. The invitation came out by the grace of God. This invitation came and we decided to receive it or accept it. We are His betrothed. And we are waiting we are waiting for the bridegroom. We are waiting for Jesus to come. In this case, return and take us back to His Father's home. 
and sit down at the marriage feast of the Lamb. A picture in the natural for us that we can relate to and see as this invitation went forth. The bride made herself ready. You know, the bride couldn't make herself ready in the first place if it had not accepted the invitation. In our case, salvation. That part is God and His grace and His love for us, drawing us and wooing us. We receive the invitation and then it talks about the righteous acts. Living a life. We are betrothed to Jesus. We are committed to Jesus. We are called to live a pure and holy life for the bridegroom. Now we know we mess up. We know we continue to sin, but our, our, our heart's desire should be to the bridegroom. As the bride, we want to bring glory and honor to the bridegroom. And it says here that we're going to be clothed as we have made ourselves ready in this white linen. Obviously, it's the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. But even so, we have that responsibility to live righteously, to live a life of holiness as we were encouraged this morning. Our our salvation is not dependent on that. Our salvation is not dependent upon living a certain way. Our salvation is given to us by grace. But yet we are still called to live in such a way. We as the bride are to be being prepared and preparing ourselves for the wedding, His return. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The blessing. I believe, according to the Scripture, everybody that's ever lived, received an invitation. Everybody. We see it in the parable of Luke that many refuse the invitation. If you would, it's a, a salvation supper. Come, and you will be blessed. And Jesus said in verse 9, it's almost as God is saying in this vision, He says, these are true words. It's like, it's all true, but it's true. These are true words. There's a marriage supper. You're invited. It's like it's just a special emphasis for us. God is speaking this. It's true. It's going to happen. Be ready. And that's where John tries to worship an angel. And the angel says no. And it's if he's saying, when you look at that last verse, it talks about, the testimony of Jesus' spirit of prophecy. This whole book is a prophetic picture. And it's a prophetic picture that's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. This prophecy, everything that's being spoken, is pointing to Jesus, our bridegroom. Don't worship me. I'm nothing but the messenger, is what the angel's saying. That's all I am. I am just a messenger a creation of God, and I serve Him. But I am not to be worshipped. Verse 11. And I saw heaven open. I tell you, talk about climatic points in history. This is like the ultimate. The heavens are open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
And his eyes are flames of fire, and upon his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And the armies which are in heaven are clothed. I should back up. I skipped verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule over them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming back. In the vision he sees heaven open. And it's interesting to me again that it's a white horse. Remember when the first seal was opened? And it was the white horse. But the white horse there was a representation of the Antichrist who was coming in peace. But it was a false peace. He was nothing but a liar and a deceiver. And here we have a picture of Jesus coming back on a white horse. He is the Prince of Peace. He is coming back. He is the real deal. He is the true Prince of Peace. And He is returning. And in Isaiah 64, the prophetic prophet Isaiah wrote these words. And when you remember what I just read from this vision... In Isaiah 64, 1 and 2, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heaven and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes the water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble tremble at your presence. Isaiah was prophesying this moment in time. The heavens are opened, and Jesus riding that white horse coming to earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Almighty. And he returns on that white horse. And it's hard for me not to, and if you study this, it's, it's hard not to look at the contrast between his first coming and this second coming. The first time Jesus came to earth, how did he come? He came as a baby in the manger, called the Prince of Peace, He lived a life of humility, almost a life of hiddenness in many respects. He came for the poor and the downtrodden. He came as a servant amongst servants. He ministered to anybody and everybody that came to him. And he humbly sacrificed himself on a cross. And now he's coming back. And this time, he ain't coming back like he came the first time. He is coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is on that war horse with the sword, the Word of God in his mouth, and he is coming back with a vengeance to mete out what the people who denied Christ, who rejected Christ, who took the mark of the beast, and who worshiped the beast are going to deserve. His justice will be met. The armies of the world, it says, are gathered. They're gathered, we know from previous chapters, at the hill of Megiddo or mountain of Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley. And they're gathered, as I said earlier, they didn't gather because they decided, "Uh uh-oh, we got a message, he's coming back. 
They had been gathered because the Eastern Bloc had got disgruntled with the Antichrist and they were breaking away and they were going to come and do war against the Antichrist and the Western Bloc, the kings that had formed this group with the Antichrist. And they were gathered in the valley. They came from the two directions and they were ready to raise war against each other. And all of a sudden, heaven opened. And here comes Jesus riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven coming with him. And I think they looked at each other and said, "Uh uh-oh, let's get together here. And what blows my mind is, all that is taking place, they are still of a mindset that, you know, we've both got big armies. If we come together, we can handle this. The arrogance of sin. The arrogance of a hardened heart. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming out of heaven with an army of angels and saints, and some or other human beings on earth think they're going to beat Him. A hardened heart. It can be so obvious to someone who believes what's happening and knows God, and yet someone over here who has a hardened heart and has resisted God, they don't get it. And it seems like there's nothing we can do to help them get it. By this time, the grace of God has been removed. This is the undiluted wrath of God about to be poured out. Verse 11 said, He who sat upon the horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. When mankind has had wars throughout history, they're not based on righteousness. There's human involvement, there's human desires, there's human motives. We can make them sound good, but really, war is tough. And they're necessary at times, we understand that. But this war is going to be one of justice and righteousness. His word is true. Now, if if you're like me, you might look at this and say, wait a minute. This is a God of love. This is a God of mercy. How could he do this? I hear that kind of thing so often. God has been demonstrating patience, mercy, and grace for over 2,000 years. 2,000 years he has been waiting. And we don't know how much longer he's going to wait. But we know it's 2,000 years closer to him saying, enough is enough. The Word tells us that it's God's desire that none should perish. That's why He's been so patient. There's but so much grace. So much mercy. But there will come a day, a, a day when this justice side of God has to be manifested. He is just, just as He is loving and merciful. It's hard for us to, to blend them, but that's who He is. And He cannot deny Himself or His Word. In verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 14, 15, 16, it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Here they come, with the righteousness of Christ from heaven, on white horses, just like he's riding. I think his is probably bigger. That's just my opinion. But notice what's missing in the description of this army. Anybody see it? Weapons. There is no mention of any weapons 
in God's magnificent, mighty army. This is God's deal. Nobody is going to take any credit for the vengeance that's about to be poured out. God is going to lead the army, and the only weapon is the sword in the mouth of Jesus on this white horse, and that sword is a symbolic picture of the Word of God. What that means to me is, they're going to come as an army and He is going to speak a word and millions are going to drop dead. The power of the Word of God. No weapon can stand against it. And it will not stand against it when He comes. It says in verse 15, the sword from His mouth, the sword is God's Word, Then it says, He will rule them with a rod of iron. Not meaning it's going to be a a mean, nasty rule. It's going to be one that is unquestionable in authority. There will be no other authority but God. And He treads the winepress of His fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. It is going to be severe. Without mercy. The mercy had been extended for however long it is from His first and second coming. We know it's been over 2,000 years now. But time has run out. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Meaning God's authority is supreme. There is no authority greater. There's no authority besides His. Starting in verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come and assemble for the great supper of God. There's that fourth supper. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and the flesh of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those he worshipped, who worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh." i got to tell you, I, honestly, I had never caught that phrase, the Supper of God, until this week. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb, I heard about that one. The Communion Supper, heard about that one. The Parable in Luke, where they called some, by some people the Salvation Supper, or called to salvation, in Luke chapter 14, in a parable of Jesus. But I had never heard of the Supper of God. We see here that God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter whether you're a king or a commander or the lowliest of lows. When his judgment comes, it's going to be meted out to everybody. The beast and the prophet, they're already thrown into the lake of fire by the end of this. He threw them in alive into the lake of fire. Eternal torment. They're already there. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. William Newell, so I'm quoting him, I'm stealing this from him. He's dead, so he won't care. (laughs) 
William Newell points to four different suppers described in the Bible. The first supper, the supper of salvation, the one alluded to by Jesus in the parable in Luke. The Lord's Supper that we participated in today is a commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice. The marriage supper of the Lamb that we all have received invitations to. And then the supper of the great God. And then he wrote this brief paragraph. If you reject the first supper, called the salvation, the second supper, communion, will mean nothing to you. Then you will not be present at the third supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, but you will be present at the fourth supper. Everybody gets to attend at least one of these suppers. Some will eat, as others will be eaten at the supper. The question is, which suppers will we go to? If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, there will be no greater day than the day that Jesus comes back for his church, for his bride. And he will find us prepared. And how prepared we will be will be dependent upon how each one of us live our lives as new believers in Christ. For those that reject Christ, the first three suppers don't apply to them at all. It's only the fourth supper and destruction and eternal separation from God in hell. God's grace and mercy are still available to all of us today. If we have not accepted Jesus Christ, we need to do it while there's still time. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ and you don't even know what that means, talk to me. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure you could talk about just anybody sitting next to you and they could tell you what it means to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is a day coming that there will be rejoicing like there has never been before in heaven. God, that the rejoicing will go forth because Jesus is coming back for his bride after being gone so long. But Father, I thank you that we are never alone and your Holy Spirit is alive in your church and in your bride. May we live lives, God, separated from the things of the world that would bring glory and honor to you. God, I thank you that your love for us is unconditional. And when we mess up, you don't cast us aside. That you love us until we're right back in that place of intimacy with you. Father, we sang about this morning how far you will go to, to get that one, even by leaving the 99. Lord, I pray for each one of us here that we would have a new resolve that the decision will have already been made that we will live like Joshua declared. For me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. We pray for grace and abundant grace as we make that new resolve. I pray now, Lord, that you would Bless each one of us. Watch over us. Keep us safe. Protect us. I pray you would anoint us as your ambassadors to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.